Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Author Meredith Erickson has traveled across the entire Alpine range, everything over 3,000 feet, visiting many towns and huts accessible only by skis. Today, she describes the food of the mountains, from Tafelspitz to dumplings, and how anyone can step back in time, even in the middle of Europe. Being isolated can, in moments, and this is why a lot of people go there, can be a luxury to just focus on making cheese every morning for three hours. And that's it. That's all I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it the best. Also coming up, we travel to Naples, not for pizza, but for meatballs. And later, Adam Gopnik tells us why sugar sales are declining. But first, it's my interview with Josh Shear. He's the food producer of Good Mythical Morning, where hosts Rhett and Link partake in crazy taste tests and other foodie experiments. Josh, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. 
You're the food producer of the YouTube web series, Good Mythical Morning. There are two hosts, Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal. Uh, so why do people enjoy watching folks eat cod sperm dumplings? Ooh, one, because cod sperm dumplings are delicious. Um, you know, I really grew up in the YouTube era. I was cloistered in my room around the family desktop watching epic mealtime and the guys, you know, uh, sewing up a turkey inside of a pig, inside of like a whole cow. And uh, it's a bit of a, a meritocracy on the internet where, you know, you don't need, like uh, a network executive may never have signed off on uh, the concept of eating a cod sperm dumpling for the gross out factor. But if you put it on the internet, it's a, a proving ground to see what people, you know, really do want to watch kind of on their own accord. And boy, do they love cod sperm dumplings. Okay, so th there is some, you know, would they eat that humor here? Mm -hmm. But some of this is pretty straightforward. You did a taste test of popcorn. You did a taste test of pizza crust. Yeah. So what is it about just tasting ordinary foods where 15 million people want to watch that on YouTube? You know, it's really funny. I, I actually started my career in digital journalism, but you see so many even legacy publications posting top 10 Greek yogurt brands taste test. And they do that because it brings in just a, a ton of views and a ton of numbers. So, I mean, I think you could call it just a very ordinary taste test watching two guys eat food. But, I mean, it really is service journalism. It's just on YouTube and not in a newspaper. Yeah, I, but but you guys are in the entertainment business. And having a list in the USA Today or online at Eater is one thing. But this is about watching your two hosts do the taste test, right? So what, what do you think is sort of the driving entertainment formula for when two, your two hosts are sitting there tasting popcorn? Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it all starts with playing on people's curiosity, you know? Uh, I think people have this sort of wish fulfillment. Like, I know myself, I would love to sit down with all 74 Taco Bell menu items and just taste them one by one and decide which is the best. And I think a lot of people have this kind of wish fulfillment fantasy. And if they can see someone do something that they've maybe always wanted to do themselves, they'll watch it. And then too, I mean, there's such a skill in, I mean, it's the skill of being a food critic, uh, not to, you know, exalt Rhett and Link on the level of like a, a Jonathan Gold or a, a Pete Wells. But, um, you know, being able to describe things that are in your mouth, like being able to describe the physical sensations that are happening to you, it's, it's a real skill. You know, they're just, uh, they're good at what they do. One of the other segments I saw was turning foods like Twinkies into milk. Um, could you just yes. explain how that worked? I kind of like that segment. Yeah, so we that, that was one of the Willet segments. A lot of this goes deep into uh, Cartesian metaphysics and food semantics, right? So when you say Willet milk, we were going more with the definition of nut milk, which there is a lot of uh, current legislation on whether that can or can't be called milk, but we ran with it regardless. <laughs> And so, yeah, in that we took uh, Twinkies and we just blended them with water and just soaked them in a nut milk bag for a couple days and then wrung it out. And um, I mean, it was truly, truly delicious. I mean, it's like, you know, Milk Bar created an em empire based off of cereal milk flavored treats. Why not, you know, Twinkie milk? Uh, the Cheetos milk did not look as delicious. <laughs> Cheetos milk was less delicious. But again, you know, that's what recipe development's about. You got to take risks. And I still think if you did like a risotto with the Cheeto milk in there, you got that uh, arborio rice nice and crispy and just kind of toasted up the excess oils and that Cheeto fat, I think it would have been nice. Yeah, I would say Cheeto milk and risotto may be something I'll pass on, but maybe I'm just too old-fashioned. Uh, <laughs> so one of the other segments you do are the fancy foods. You take a Subway foot long and spend $500 making the most expensive version of it. Um, and you also did a $200 Big Mac did you get to eat that Big Mac, too, or just the host? I did get to eat it. I actually made a really lovely tartare out of some leftover steak, so that was awesome. Uh, but, yeah, that to me is, like, the definition of viewer wish fulfillment. Because, I mean, I think so many people have this nostalgic connection to so many different fast food items. And just, like, what if you made that as awesome as you possibly could? So based on this show and other YouTube shows about food, wh where is this all headed? Yeah. You look at what's happening to Food Network, right? How many stand and stir cooking shows are even left? You know, everything on Food Network is now a competition show where 
chefs are cooking in floaties as Alton Brown, you know, yells at them and hits them with a bullwhip or whatever. Mm. Uh, and then you look at YouTube and look at what Bon Appetit is doing. Bon Appetit, you know, the single biggest legacy print glossy food mag is now like 5 million subscribers deep on YouTube and putting out the most educational cooking content on any platform. Honestly, I think we're just getting into an era where you're going to see more diverse voices, more just educational food content that people want to see. And it's kind of funny because it's now like less extreme stuff than what is on network TV. Josh, thank you very much for being on Milk Street. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. That was Josh Shear. He's the food producer of the YouTube series Good Mythical Morning. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Moult, and I will answer a few of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So before we take calls, here's my question. You are a very particular, precise person, right? I mean, you, you like things to be exact in the kitchen. Do you ever go in the kitchen and just, like, throw caution to the wind and do crazy stuff? I do it all the time with leftovers. Leftovers so, so speak give, give, to me. Give me a crazy thing. Oh, geez. Oh, that's hard. Well, I used ratat. I made some ratatouille the other day. I'll tell you why. I'm doing a big dinner for my women's culinary group, and I want to do traditional French food. And I know it's not the season for ratatouille, but I remember this recipe my mom used to make. At any rate, I made some, and it reminded me all over again how silky and wonderful eggplant gets when it cooks down. And I had this vat of ratatouille in the fridge, and I made a soup with some other leftover kale and vegetables and all sorts of things. And it was thin, and I didn't want to bother pureeing some of it, which is what I usually do. So I just threw in a couple spoonfuls of ratatouille and Boom. It was fantastic. <laughs> this is, I, so I that's you, me being wild uh, and I, crazy. I, I asked you to tell me about something you did that was wild and crazy. You had two tablespoons or two spoonfuls no, of ratatouille. No, two kitchen spoons. Spoons into your soup. Okay, well. Yeah, that's, no, no. Ratatouille is a thickener. Folks, and most people don't have it kicking folks, around. now we know how crazy Sarah Moulton gets mm-hmm. in the kitchen. Okay. Okay. Time for a call, I think. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Jen Hansen, and I'm calling from Maynard, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Local call. How can we help you? My question today has to do with frozen shrimp. I noticed some time ago when I was defrosting shrimp that there was a particular smell to them that was almost kind of chemically, and I I couldn't quite place it. But when I looked at the ingredients, in addition to shrimp, I saw that there was a preservative added, something like to help retain moisture or freshness. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I've done a bit of shopping around, and it really doesn't seem to matter if I'm buying them, you know, farm-raised from another country or wild-caught in the U.S. at the Fancy Pants grocery store. There almost always seems to be an added preservative. So recently, I've been able to track down some preservative-free shrimp, and when I cook them, I feel like they're fresher and cleaner, and they don't have this thing that I, I think I can smell and taste. My question for you is, you know, why doesn't this seem to come up more often? You know, I would think stores that are organic and whole would use it as a selling point. So am I alone here? I'm just no, really you, interested you've, to hear your thoughts uh, you're absolutely this. right. It's sodium tripolyphosphate. It's in almost all shrimp. Shrimp is a very dodgy seafood. A lot of places it's grown is not sustainable. If you saw where they were harvested or grown, you probably wouldn't buy them. I won't mention any countries. <laughs> and so maybe 5 or 10% of the catch doesn't have this STPP in it. It's there because it helps retain water, which means when you weigh the shrimp, they're going to make more money because you're selling water along with the seafood and also is a preservative, I guess, of types. If you get frozen blocks of shrimp sometimes in five-pound blocks, I think sometimes they don't have that in it. But if you can buy them dry, when it doesn't have this chemical, it's called being sold dry. As you found out, it's vastly better. Wild Gulf shrimp is our choice all the time if you can find it. But STPP is not a good thing. So you're absolutely right. Try to find shrimp without it. Well, good for you for being so inquiring. There's a website you can go to, seafoodwatch.org. 
um, you type in what fish you're looking for, and it will tell you what your options are in terms of being sustainable or not sustainable. However, I do not think they list this uh, sodium tri—you pronounce it again. Sodium tripolyphosphate? I don't think they list that, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, It's the same thing they did to scallops, and now we know to go ask for dry Dry or or dayboat scallops. The thing with scallops, besides making them heavier, is then they could stay out at sea for days. Maybe it's the same thing with shrimp. You know, just harvest a whole bunch, and if as long as they throw them in this liquid that has these preservatives, then they don't have to come back. That's what happened with scallops, because scallops are very perishable, and they didn't want to have to come back every time. Also, the the dry scallops, when you saute them, you get a better saute. Yeah, you can, they because sear. Because with this chemical liquid starts to come out of the shrimp or the scallop when you cook them. So you'll get a much better sear on them, as Sarah said. Right. So I'd say so. two things. Do what you did, a sleuthing campaign, and look for shrimp with that additive A. And B, everybody should know about seafoodwatch.org to make sure you're not buying shrimp from a place where they treat their workers terribly and they're, you know, are destroying the environment. Fascinating. I'll, I'll definitely check out that website. This is really great information. Okay. Thanks, Jen. I'm so excited I got to talk to you all. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for calling. Dry shrimp forever. (laughs) Yes. There you go. Yes. Okay. Take care. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. This is uh, Dick from Douglas, Mass. How can we help you today? Well, every winter I make uh, beef broth from scratch, and I get marrow bones from a local butcher. I roast them, and then I roast vegetables, put them in a big stock pot, about 14 quarts, cook it all day, and then at the end of the day, we stick it outside, and then in the morning, we skim the fat off, and there's our beef broth. But it's inconsistent from year to year. Some years, it's nice and viscous and gelatinous, and other years, it's thin, and I think I'm doing the same recipe each time. So how do I get that viscous beef broth every time? You know uh, where there's an awful lot of gelatin, because gelatin is what makes it nice and viscous, is like knuckles. Maybe you want to throw in um, some shank cross-cut. Another thought is to mix in some veal bones. Let me ask another question. Do you love this stock? Is this fabulous stock by the time you're done? Oh, it is. It's really great. Is this a sub-simmer all for eight hours, or you actually get this up to a boil? Once everything is roasted, we put it in the the big stock pot, fill it with water, bring it to a boil, and then just keep it on a steady simmer all day. Okay, well, that sounds That's good, because if you boil it, that could affect the gelatinous nature of it. The last question is, how much water? Is there a ton of water over and above what's in the pot, or just two or three inches of water over the bones? It's a 14-quart stock pot, so if the bones and the vegetables maybe fill up a third of it, we just fill the whole thing with water up to the... Bingo. Okay. I, I think you have too much water. Chris is absolutely right. Oh. When I make stock, I keep the liquid two fingers above the top of right. the bones, just two fingers. That water does reduce, so I add more water to keep it always at two fingers. So it, focus less on the bones themselves and on the amount of water. Right. Although I don't think it'd be okay. a bad idea to get a few veal bones in there or some, you know, a few chicken feet if he ever had them. I mean, can I just make my usual mm-hmm. snide comment about stock, which is if you start with meat, which I know is more expensive, and this is a very frugal concept, which is brilliant. But if you start with some meat, you'll have more flavor. Yeah, you could throw some meat in too. Yeah, I mean, meat has more flavor than bones. So if you have some meat in there... That's not a bad thing. So yeah, so chicken wings. Although, chicken wings would be okay. Because yeah. the, there's gelatin. A gelatin in the skin, too. And That's then not you a got, bad idea. you got the meat bones and skin yeah. going for you with some chicken wings. So. And they brown up beautifully. So that would be nice. But your... just two inches over, it's like making rice. Just a little bit more water than rice, same thing. And yeah. that, that'll solve your problem for yeah. uh, thickness. Yay! That was easy. Well, thank you so much, you guys. Okay. I appreciate it. Okay. You guys give me some tips, and I appreciate the show a lot. And Great. good for you for making your own stock. Yes, Dick. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Radio. Sarah and I are ready to help solve your culinary problems. Just give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time and slowly, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Amy Main. Hi, Amy. Where are you calling from? Memphis. How can we help you today? Well, 
I have not ever been able to successfully make banana bread. What happens? Every recipe I try, it comes out sort of burned on the outside or dark brown and then soupy in the middle. Well, let me ask you a few questions. And you've said you've tried many different recipes. Do they tell you cups of bananas mashed? What do they tell you? The most recent one I tried said five bananas. Wow. They can be huge and they can be small. So that's a problem right there. I would go with a recipe that has uh, cups of mashed banana or that goes with the weight of the bananas. Um, What kind of pan are you cooking it in? Well, I have like a glass pan, and then I also have the nonstick, which I don't really care for the nonstick. I Mm -hmm. usually go with the glass pans, but it doesn't seem to matter which one I try. The thing about the glass is it heats up and then it holds the heat. It can overcook the outside, regardless of the pan, you're going to need to lower the temperature and cook it longer because when it sets on the outside, as you said it has and gotten burnt, then the heat Mm -hmm. doesn't get through to the inside. So if you are using glass, I would reduce the oven temperature by 25 degrees or so and cook it longer. Okay. I completely disagree. (laughs) Just to be difficult. Go ahead. Go Um, ahead. Do you ever have trouble with your oven cooking anything else like cakes or brownies or is this the only recipe where it's overcooked on the outside, undercooked on the inside? This is the only one. I have a five-star range, and I have a gas side and a convection side. Recently, I tried the convection side, and I thought I had it, and then I look at it, and it's just like soup in the middle. I mean, it's just, it's always the same. Are the pans you're using, the, the Pyrex pan, a pan you use for other quick breads? No. I said glass, but it's the Emile Henri, those pans. Oh, yeah. I would get a baking pan that is light colored, not dark colored. Aluminum. And I, you know, I agree with Sarah. You'd want to turn the oven down at least 25 degrees, maybe more. You have a separate thermometer you can stick in the oven? I do. And that says, yeah, I I just checked that too. Yeah, I think we're actually, even though I defiantly said I disagree, (laughs) I think Sarah and I actually (laughs) pretty much agree on this. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, use a different pan. It might just be the Emile Henri pans. Okay. I'll try that. Okay. Great. Thank you. All right. All right. And, and Amy, let us know how it goes. Okay. okay. Yeah. Re- we always I like will. a follow-up. Oh, the, one last thing you could do is use a meal Henri, but just reduce the oven like 50 degrees. Really reduce it 40, 50 oh. degrees and give that a shot. And cook it longer. And cook okay. it longer. That might solve your problem right okay. there. I think even 25 right. would work. All right. Thank okay. you for calling. All right. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we hear from Meredith Erickson about her journey through the Alps. That's coming up after the break. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's author and adventurer Meredith Erickson, who has traveled across the Alps by car, by foot, and skis in search of the ultimate alpine hut experience from cheese dumplings and sausages to the morning view across the mountains. Her collection of recipes and stories from the region is called Alpine Cooking. Meredith, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much. You wrote a book about alpine cooking. You've spent many years hiking, skiing in the Alps. Let's define alpine. Are we talking about uh, two or three countries? What does alpine mean? That's a great question. So I had to choose. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. There's one altitude that defined what I meant by alpine, and I chose 1,000 meters and above. And that's not exactly arbitrary because that is a lot of the places where uh, herdsmen will take their cows and that's where a lot of the first huts kind of will be. And that takes you about a good 30 minutes at least um, to get up to. And then I had to decide country boundary-wise and I decided to leave the pre-Alps out of it. And I stuck with four main countries, which is Italy, Switzerland, Austria, and France. A lot of people hear Alps. They think of skiing. They think of Zermatt. I mean, they think of rich European vacationers. <laughs> uh, but, you, but what you said in the book, Alpine Cooking, is that this is not just for the rich and famous. This is something anybody can do. Yeah, I think that's a, a really the biggest misunderstanding about the Alps. As a matter of fact, the mountains are for everyone. It's the most democratic, difficult terrain. A lot of the people that have been living in the Alps, I'll give you, you know, they're completely isolated. And um, I'll give you an example, Saurus in the Italian Alps, a lot of the villagers there told me that while the Second World War was happening, they didn't even know because it was business hmm. as usual within the village. Uh, it's not at all that glitz and glamour. That's a confusion of kind of resort towns, which have their own appeal and are incredible, but that's not at all what my book is about. So let's just talk about huts, for example, and hiking. So 
who built these huts? Why did they build them? And how did they come into being in the beginning? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of reasons. The first would be families that have been there for, let's say, four, five, six generations. The Volzer tribe has been there since the 1100s, and um, they were they're people who would have a house uh, in the valley, and then they would have a summer house that they would walk up to to the pasture. Other people would be farmers and herdsmen who make cheese and take um, the, the cows up in the summertime, and then in the October, November months, bring them down. And in Tyrol, parts of Tyrol, there's an actual procession to bring the cattle down. It's almost like a New Year celebration to bring good fortune and good health. Yeah, my wife's mother's from Austria, and uh, they have a small cabin in a part of the Alps. And that village still, there is a procession and they bring the cows down. And I'm just going like, I just ended up in a, not a Grimm's fairy tale, but maybe a Disney fairy tale. It just sounds like something that nobody would still do, but they pasture them up uh, in the mountains above the tree line in the summer. Um, Yeah, so it's incredible. What does it look like? Just take us in one of these places, a a typical place. What does it look like? What is it like inside? Uh, Just give us a, a visual picture. Okay, sure. Um, I'm thinking of this place that a lot of some people in the food world know. It's called Guesthouse Asher. And it's, um, it was on the cover of Bon Appetit for this other book that I did called Olympia Provisions. We, we visited there. It's in the Appenzeller in Switzerland, and it's literally a uh, two-floor cabin hanging off of a cliff. So you walk in, and to the left, you have a small kitchen that constantly has steam rolling out of the windows because they're always making roshti, which is um, shredded potatoes. Um, You'll go to the right, and there will be a little, what they call a stube, which is a little wooden place where the family would normally sit and have uh, breakfast and dinner. And, and in this case, it would be for the guests. Is this also called a Baumstube, or is that that's just the Austrian it version? It is. The that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you'll walk up then a really kind of creaky, narrow staircase, and you'll come to four rooms upstairs that you can rent. And they're just like really thin mattress on the floor. And there's a room that sleeps 20. There's a room that (laughs) sleeps four. Anyway, the point is, it's communal, communal sleeping. So if you want a real taste for Alpine, Mm. this is a great option. And then in the morning at 4.30, you're going to hear those cowbells. You're going to see a herdsman. You're going to see a lot of goats coming on their way up. Uh, You're going to see the sun rising over the Swiss Alps. It's pretty, pretty spectacular. You're you're not diminishing my interest in this trip. You're (laughs) stoking the fires. Good. So let's talk about food. A classic would be Tafelspitz, if you want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tafelspitz is a, a boiled beef, and Tafelspitz is quintessential Austrian cooking. And what I love about it is it takes one of the cheaper cuts of beef, boils it, and then it's all about the serving that kind of makes it quite imperial. So it will be the beef in a stock, and then on the side there will be creamed spinach or potatoes. And I've had it in Salzburg, and I've had it in huts, and it's very rustic, Moorish and elegant, which are three three words I would use to describe kind of Austrian cooking in general. And, and some horseradish, please. And uh, definitely some horseradish, yeah, which is goes with all all of the countries because it is a root vegetable and accessible. Some of these things I'd never heard of. A bombardino. You want to talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah, Bombardino. Um, you can get Bombardino two ways. You can get Bombardino, fortunately or unfortunately, it, they actually make it pre-made in almost all of the huts. But it's it's egg yolk and usually whipped cream on top and a bit of nutmeg. Uh, in Italy, it's also served with brandy. And it's basically done kind of how the British do 11 C's. A Bombardino happens around 10 or 11 a.m. when you kind of need that warm pick-me-up with a bit of a bit of booze. So it's like Sabayone or something like that, right? Exactly. It tastes exactly like Sabayon. Uh, dumplings are very popular in Austria and Eastern Europe and a lot of places. Uh, and you have some recipes in them in the book. Uh, I assume a lot of places serve them. And 
when you talk about dumplings in the Alps, they're very different than dumplings here, right? Yeah. So um, one of my favorites uh, in the Dolomites near the town of Valgardena, there's a place on this great run, this great ski run called Sacheta, and it's called Sophie Hut. And Sophie is just such a badass lady. She's 85 now. She takes a, a caterpillar, like i.e. the one in The Shining, for example, to get her hair done every Wednesdays. <laughs> and she and her husband started this hut and had two children there. And her specialty is speck dumplings, so pork dumplings. A lot of places will do just meat dumplings, cheese dumplings around the corner in Brunica. When I say corner, I mean like 45 minutes away up completely different mountain. Um, they'll do a gray cheese dumpling that's taken from the, the cheese that they make in their local huts. And you have to remember at these mountains, like a lot of people would be stuck at altitude for two, three weeks and snowed in. So you're really taking whatever you have in your kitchen to make to last you. So it preserve, you know, meats, uh, flour, eggs were a huge special, a specialty if you could get them. So Talk to me about you spent years and years uh, off and on touring. Did you get stuck? Uh, did you, you know, end up off this going down the wrong path on the ski slope? You must have got lost a couple times. What, what happened to you? I made so many mistakes, so many mistakes. And I mean, I say in the introduction, part of my inspiration to write this book is so that people wouldn't make the same mistakes that I did. Um, of the many mistakes I made, I would say that when I was in Cortina for my first time, I heard about this place that you have to go to. It's called El Brite, and it's a farmhouse that's about 20 minutes north of Cortina. And it was, and it was dark, and it was snowing. You know, it was seven o'clock. I said, well, "Who cares? That's fine." I, I took, had the car, and I kind of asked the receptionist, El Brite, it's up in the mountains. She just waved, "Yes, just keep going, keep going, keep going." So, of course, as I'm, I'm going up, I'm going up, I'm going up. It turns uh, into ice. The road turns into straight ice, and I see a small sign, and I turn up, and it's all, it's a, a vertical. And uh, the car I had, which was from Venice, didn't even have snow chains, huge mistake, started sliding back. And it slid back kind of <laughs> until uh, the, the, the trees, and I hit very lightly, I hit um, a tree. And then, you know, I was like pretty scared because I didn't know where I was at this point. And a guy came, um, a huge man, like maybe it just seemed at the time because I was scared, but it seemed like he was 6'5", got out of a tractor, you know, had pig manure like all over his, over his coveralls <laughs> and just like plopped me in his tractor. And that was the father of Ricky, who's the chef at El Brite. And I walked in and it was just a magical moment because you know, the dining room was full. I sat down to four courses. The first thing I had, which is one of my favorite recipes in the book, is this bread soup with chicory and egg. Mm. And there were there was a table of twelve Romans, and two of them were hoteliers. And I think, you know, I think I must have looked like I was pretty shocked, or I couldn't believe kind of my luck. And they were like, where are you from? And then we started talking, and then I ended up skiing with them the next, the next couple of days. The book, it seems to me, which I love, is, is not just about the food or the huts or travel, but you're going and finding places in Europe that uh, I wouldn't say haven't changed, but are pretty much off the beaten path with their own cultures, et cetera. Did you learn something about, you know— how these people live that influences your own life or something that was a little surprising to you in terms of the people you met? Um, I think, so, I mean, I come from a, a pretty, my parents live in a pretty small town in Ontario in Canada, and I've always kind of felt that small town people are the best people. Um, this is real salt of the earth, you know, in the mountains, and um, it takes incredible 
of flexibility with the weather. It takes incredible determination to keep going. And I think being around that was really inspiring. The kind of being isolated is can in moments, and this is why a lot of people go there, can be a luxury to just focus on making cheese every morning for three hours. And that's it. That's all I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it the best. There's a quote from your book I really liked. Um, Alpine cooking is a showcase for ingenuity and grit in the face of remote living. Mm-hmm. You want to just talk about that for a second? Sure. So uh, I think, you know, when we were talking about the families and kind of my takeaway and what I love is if you are, if you are snowed in, for for two weeks straight, it's time to get creative with the six or seven ingredients you have. If you have an opportunity to only make money three months of the year, it's time to get creative in what it is that you're selling. And I felt that in families and entrepreneurial spirit. I felt that in a sports spirit. I felt that dealing with climate change, which is uh, especially with Swiss engineers and Austrian engineers, how they're dealing with man-made snow and trying to keep things cool in the mountains. And if things warm up as quickly as we think they will, how they're going to deal with that. Um, you know, deal, it's dealing with the elements every, every, every day and like in a really profound spirit. So you need to go back and spend more time. Yeah, I mean, for me, the Alps, the Alps are life. I'll be there every winter, as many summers as I can, just continually building on this book, finding different recipes, talking to more interesting characters. Yeah, I'm, I'm sold. Meredith Erickson, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Meredith Erickson, author of Alpine Cooking, Recipes and Stories from Europe's Grand Mountaintops. Meredith Erickson knows something about Europe that we sometimes forget. In a wine bar in Salzburg, Austria, I was once surrounded by locals who spoke a dialect that is totally unintelligible to a German speaker. Outside of Bologna, Italy, I met a hunter who opened the trunk of his car to show me the two freshly killed pheasants. And hiking above the tree line in the Austrian Alps, I discovered a vast uncharted landscape of cows, small hidden pastures, and rocky outcrops. You know, Trafalgar Square, the Louvre, and the Colosseum are all impressive. But next time, try an Alpine hut and a plate of boiled beef. It offers a delicious taste of history. It's time to head into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Neapolitan meatballs with ragu. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So most people go to Naples for the pizza. Of course. I mean, most normal people. No, I'm not normal. No. You went for meatballs. Meatballs. I didn't even know that Naples was famous for meatballs. So what are Neapolitan meatballs? They, well, for one, they're massive. And they come to you on a plate, one or two of them, in this beautiful, sweet, glowing red pool of ragu. And, and you take your fork and you cleave into them, and they just Lit most wonderfully because they are so tender, and then you taste them, and they are so rich and so meaty. I had no idea that the meatball could be that good, and I had no idea why they were that good. And, and I had them at this restaurant, this Trattoria La Taverneta, the family-run place, five sisters, their parents, their grandmothers making lasagna in the back room. Amazing little place. They agreed to show me how they make their meatballs. And, and at first, I was equally confused because nothing seemed out of the ordinary. It was cheese, it was eggs, parsley, bread, and beef. But as so often is, you know, the secret is in the details, it was the amounts of these ingredients that they used. And the secret was a ton of bread. Now, usually you think that was filler. Right. It was cucina povera, right? Right. Poor cuisine. But you thought, actually, more breadcrumbs makes a better meatball? Well, yeah, and, you know, very likely it was cucina povera. But it just so happened that that makes a delicious meatball. And, and you know, you, I watched one of the sisters, Rosa Vitozzi, make these meatballs. And she takes huge hunks of white bread and soaks it in water and squeezes it out and then crumbles that into the ground meat and, and mixes it all together. And she's adding so much that you think these meatballs are going to fall apart. 
And actually, they don't. And it, it was just the bread holds everything together, so it acts as a binder as well, as, and, it, and at the same time keeps it feeling very tender. Now, what shocked me was the percentage of bread that she used to meat ratio, which was over 25% bread per mm. meatball. And as I ate my way around Naples, as I am wont to do, I found some recipes that used as much as 40% bread per recipe. And, and it was just really deliciously tender, meaty meatballs. So, so I have a question, though. You would think they wouldn't be meaty. They'd be tender and light. Yes. Yep. But are they still meaty? They were incredibly meaty. And, you know, and, and my take on it is the, the bread soaks up the flavor of the meat. It retains the juices of the meat and all that delicious fat. And, and the result was just really blew me away. So we brought the recipe back here. Are, are these baked or are they, they're cooked in a skillet? We bake them before we combine them with the ragu. And, and they held together great both during baking and when they're simmering in the ragu. And the only real adaptation we had to do, and, and frankly, it's, it's mostly because I think the sisters who make them in, in Naples are just so much more experienced than we are doing this. They had no trouble gauging the amount of moisture and the amount of bread per meatball. We found a little too, vari too much variability in that. And we weren't very good at squeezing out the right amount of liquid from the bread. We also found that the variety of bread we used bread. was too challenging. So anyway, we ended up using panko breadcrumbs, which had a, a consistent feel in the, in the meatballs. Because otherwise you get too much bread or too little bread. Exactly, or too much moisture. Or too much moisture. So there we have it. We went to Naples, not for pizza. Not for pizza. You, you are a very strange person. <laughs> but, but for giant meatballs, which have a lot of bread in them, which makes them tender and lovely and also very meaty. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Neapolitan meatballs with ragu at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we chat with Adam Gopnik about the declining sales of sugar. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, I'm Max Lemp from Duluth, Minnesota, and my cooking tip is uh, regarding peanut butter and almond butter. Uh, my wife and I buy almond butter and peanut butter that separates when it gets warm. And instead of using a butter knife to kind of make a mess and try and stir everything back together, I take one beater on my mixer, my hand mixer, and stick it in and mix everything together, which is one beater so it fits in the jar. And then we store it in the fridge afterwards so it doesn't separate. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient, you know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. 
It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's hear from regular contributor Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you this week? I am fine, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Well, here's what I've been thinking about. You know, Tom Wolfe, the great and now sadly just past uh, journalist and writer, always said that the wisest thing, the best advice he could give to any young journalist was to read specialized industry magazines and books. In other words, that where you would get your really strong ideas from was not from reading the New York Times or the Washington Post, bless them both, but from reading the small stockholders' <laughs> manuals or from reading um, Dry Cleaner Weekly, that that's where you would really see where the real warp and woof of the society was in, at play. And I've always thought that was fabulous news. And because I'm, as you know, very interested in food, I try to read all the kind of food business weeklies. And one of the most interesting things I've discovered reading the um, inside trade magazines is that we are living in a sudden moment of an enormous decline in sugar consumption. Were you aware of that? No, I wasn't. I, I, I thought there was a lot of talk about it, but as usual, it didn't actually impact uh, consumer habits. That's exactly what I thought, too. I thought that when it was a tiny slice of people who put um, fake sweeteners in their coffee or who were turned on by stevia or something like that. But no, it turns out to be a very real phenomenon. Sugar sales have gone down by something like 15% globally. Sugar prices are at an all-time low. And that's a real surprise because sugar, as you know, is traditionally, and not just in the United States, a heavily supported crop. In other words, sugar in the United States gets massive government support, but so it does in Thailand and India. But in any case, sugar is um, declining. Sugar sales are declining and sugar prices are declining, despite the framework of government support that they get. And the reason for it seems to be twofold. One, that sugar is bad for your health. Sugar uh, makes you put on weight, that people are turning away from sugar. And that's part of it. But the other reason, and this is a reason that you will see on every list of food trends in 2020, is that Sugar substitutes. I don't mean fake sugar. I mean other kinds of sweetness are creeping more and more into our diet. We now have 16 kinds of honey on every supermarket shelf. Coconut sugar is a commonplace now on our tables. And that's fascinating if you think about it, Chris, because one of the greatest, and I would probably argue the single greatest revolution on our tables in the past four or 500 years was the arrival of cane sugar and the creation in the wake of the arrival of cane sugar, of a real dessert cuisine in Western, and particularly in French-influenced and affected cooking. You know, before the real arrival of sugar and cane sugar in the 15th and 16th centuries, there wasn't really the thing we think of as dessert. 
uh, most cooking, even in France, especially in France, was a mix of sweet and salty tastes on the same plate as it remains to this day in places like North Africa. Fruit and meat blended and mixed on the plate because those were the natural sources of sweetness that you could find. And then came the arrival of cane sugar, and for the first time you began to get what we think of as modern desserts, which even to this day, always invariably, and at least to my partial surprise each time, involve starting with a cup or two of white sugar. Have you I've never had that uh, moment of surprise when you're making something, a simple thing, a crisp or a simple cake, to be reminded that you're expected to put a half a cup or a whole cup of sugar in with the fruit or mixed with the flour? Yeah, and I always cut it in half or two-thirds if it's <laughs> yes. an older recipe because a, a cup of sugar in your apple pie is going to destroy the pie. Totally. But that was the base. That was the, the simple idea on which so much Western cooking was based. The whole idea of dessert, not just the taste of dessert, but the idea of having a dessert course. And one of the things that I've noticed in the rise of global cuisine is that most of the cuisines that it turns on, whether they're Middle Eastern or Israeli or they're Vietnamese, Thai, don't really have a separate dessert cuisine, or at least their dessert cuisine is quite rudimentary. It's rooted in one or two sugar sticks or in that universal potion or rice pudding. But the complicated, elaborate repertory of desserts that we associate with French and Italian cooking, particularly, and American, are largely absent. So if this trend continues, if the decline in sugar consumption and sugar usage continues, it will mark the great reversal, the great turning back of the tide, which has been sweetening our lives since the 16th century. Yeah, it's interesting. First of all, Northern Europe and America, which had its cuisine mostly from Northern Europe at the outset, was uh, based on sugar because sugar by the 1880s became very cheap, right? Mm -hmm. Before 1870, 1880, we didn't have elaborate use of sugar, and all of a sudden you'd have confectionery stores and sculptures made of sugar. So it was availability, and my guess is the rest of the world, sugar was probably more expensive than it was here, uh, and therefore you ended up using it less. But most of the world, as you say, doesn't really have desserts the way we do, and they incorporate sugar still today. Uh, into everything they do. Sweetness and savoriness go together, which makes it, as you said, a really more interesting cuisine. Uh, Instead of separating sugar out to the end, combining it naturally where it should be, uh, I think is extraordinarily appealing and fueling, I think, what is obviously a revolution home cooking. I, I, I agree with you. And of course, we've all had that awkward moment when we go to an upscale Thai or Indian restaurant and the dessert course comes around, and they try to make some variant of a recognizably Northern European dessert within the grammar of their own kind of cooking, and it never quite works. It never quite belongs, exactly because what makes their cooking so glorious, among other things, is its seamless incorporation of sweet tastes into the savory. What I hadn't known and what I wasn't quite expecting was that this would actually reflect in a decline in sugar consumption, that as Uh, a new attitude towards taste as the uh, separation out of sweet and savory taste became uh, less marked, that the great reign of cane sugar would begin to recede. Well, it's also, my guess, is is weight and health, right? I mean, those are the two big big trends still. And I think people are are using uh, natural sugars like stevia, right? That's even in my household. My wife has mine little too, bottles, mine of, too. you know, hidden hidden behind the standing mixer by the water. Uh, yeah, it's there. And also people are concerned about weight and sugar. But I think it's also about publicity, right? It was fats that were causing all the health problems in the 70s and 80s, not sugar. And now that argument has started up again. And now sugar is viewed as being probably more dangerous than fat. Yes. Fats got an unfair portion of the blame and right. sugar less of it. It's fascinating to me because I've... I, did a long piece not long ago about the um, the science of aging. And the crucial thing that you realize when you talk to people who actually know about aging and how to keep yourself from aging too badly is that it doesn't matter what you eat. The key is not to eat too much of it and to get be really hungry when you do, to induce stress, what they call hormesis, on your own body. It turns out that the, uh, the biology of aging and the biology of disease is a little cruder and more universal than uh, the purveyors of food may have wanted us to believe. So is that your next book, Adam Gottmick's uh, Desperately Hungry Cookbook? <laughs> <Is> that... 
Totally. Diet book. I'm now, on, well, perhaps sometime in the future we'll talk about the ins and outs of intermittent fasting. But I now go without anything except a cup of coffee between the hours of nine at night and one o'clock the next day, except a cup of coffee with a spoonful of sugar in it. Adam Gopnik, thank you. You're a philosopher king, but now you also are a, a, a food trendist as well. Uh, and may you have a speedy recovery. Thank you so much. I'm going to try and get out of it. I'll stop reading the specialized magazines and go back to reading The New Yorker. Excellent. Take care. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Adam Gopnik wonders if the sugar revolution is now at an end, but during the 1960s, sugar was, I have to say, my best friend. The jingle went, sugar pops or tops, they're shot with sugar through and through. Frosted flakes were frosted with, well, you know, sugar. And many kids' foods were nothing but sugar, including Pez, Fizzies, Crystal Rock Candy, Pixie Sticks, and of course Kool-Aid. These days, sugar has gone underground as corn syrup or grape juice concentrate. It's now perceived as poison. Remembering my childhood, I'll take my sugar straight up, thanks. You know, sometimes a spoonful of sugar does make the medicine go down, and in a most delightful way. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch the new season of our public television show, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, recipes that will change the way you cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as usual, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubop Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.